Hi everyone. Welcome to the Desi Crime podcast. I am Ashwarya, your host for this episode, and I'm Aryan. Before we start the case for today, we want all of you to go over to our Patreon and subscribe to support the podcast. To help the podcast out and to avail amazing benefits, go to www.patreon.com/desicrime and select a tier that works best for you. We'd also like to thank our newest patrons, Ashwarya Gupta, Smriti Bidappa, and Divya Kantedi. Thank you so much for any contributions you make in helping run this podcast. The cases you usually hear on true crime podcasts, the ones we usually cover, have a clear perpetrator and a clear victim. One person is in the wrong, the obvious suspect, the villain in the case. One person is innocent, the one who has been wronged and whose justice we long for. But then come cases that flip on their head our conception of wrong or right, good or evil. Today's story is one such case. It's a case of a woman abused, tormented, and emotionally tortured until she snapped. This is the story of Dr. Chamari Leonage. Ashwara, our listeners absolutely love us, and that's a fact that is indisputable. <laughs> yeah. But in order to reciprocate that love and that sense of urgency, they show every week an episode isn't released. We're trying to make up for the week um, a few weeks ago where we couldn't release an episode because of a scheduling issue. So this week we will be releasing two episodes for you. One of which is a YouTube exclusive, but no longer so. Can you tell us more about it? Right, Aran. So this is an episode that our YouTube subscribers, our YouTube listeners, at the very least, have heard. Uh, so mm-hmm. this is an episode that we've done previously, but we wanted to bring this to all of you that hear this on our pure audio podcast form because there's a lot of you, a significant, substantial portion of you that didn't actually translate over to YouTube, and we wanted this episode to be out for everyone alike. Um, with that, Ishwara, take us through this fascinating tale that occurred in Sri Lanka. I remember hearing this story when we recorded that YouTube episode, and it grappled me probably more so than any other case from Sri Lanka has. Um, but you know, you have newer insights into this case now, so I'd love to know. Uh, what this case is all about? Yeah, this is a case, Aryan, that made groundbreaking headlines not just in Sri Lanka but also in Australia, where it actually took place. But it missed some major traction in other Desi communities, which is unfortunate because this is a significant case not just in the moral questions it poses, but it's significant considering the incredibly high number of domestic violence cases that still plague South Asian communities, with UN women claiming approximately thirty-three percent of all women between age. 15 and 50 experiencing domestic violence at the hands of a current or former male partner when you consider sexual harassment in asia 75% of all women in that age bracket report being victims 
20,000 women died at the hands of a male partner in the year 2017 in Asia alone, making Asia the continent with the highest female killing rate anywhere in the world. And that doesn't even include uh, South Asia being the hub of honor killings with some of the highest per capita yep. honor killings, the victims of which are predominantly women. But it's not just those conspicuous forms of brutality. It's also the more hidden, the more subtle ones, the ones that we were talking about before this recording began, where since we've been in India for a few weeks now, and you talked about how you're experiencing you know, some version of that in the way you have to dress in certain situations and how you can't be completely free to choose uh, depending on the context you're in. And so I think South Asia, this prevails in South Asia more so than many parts of the developed and developing world. Absolutely. This is a unique experience. We've talked of this many times previously in our podcast. We have a significant portion of female listenership with which I completely 100% relate. Our experience is unique. Uh, but Aryan, this story, it doesn't begin here in South Asia. It doesn't. For this story, I'm going to have to take you all the way to Australia in the year 2014. In the small West Australian town of Geraldton, at 6.30am on the morning of June 24th, a 33-year-old woman dialed 000, the country's emergency telephone number, asking the cops to arrive at her residence immediately. The call lasted about 10 minutes with the woman crying and claiming she couldn't remember what had happened. This woman was Dr. Chamari Lianake a Sri Lankan woman who had migrated to Australia in 2011 after her husband, Dr. Dinendra Athukarala, had moved there just a few months prior. They were both successful doctors at the same hospital, the Geraldton Regional Hospital. The two had met five years ago, back in 2009 in Sri Lanka, while they were both working at the Colombo North Teaching Hospital and had fallen madly in love. Dinendra was charming, an outgoing man and deeply caring and generous. When the two first met, it seemed like destiny working its charm. But something had happened just five years later in their Australian home that had compelled Shamari to call the emergency responders. When cops arrived at the couple's home, they saw a scene right out of everyone's worst nightmare. They found Shamari laying on the floor of her home's lounge room, alive and breathing but in a fetal position with blood all over her clothes. The emergency responders asked her if she remembered what had happened. She said she had no recollection whatsoever. The cops then made their way around the house and finally entered the couple's bedroom. On the bed lay the body of Chamari's 32-year-old husband, Dinendra. There were blood splatters all over the walls of the room and the ceiling. It was obvious Dinendra was dead. He had a pillow over his head and there was blood all over his body and the sheets too. From the house, the cops recovered a 1.8 kilogram mallet with blood on it, which the cops immediately understood to be the murder weapon. There were no signs of struggle on either of the two's body, prompting the cops to assume Dinendra was bludgeoned to death in his sleep. There was no sign of forced entry into the house, nothing stolen from the house, no rooms in the house found ransacked, no cupboards broken into, everything completely intact. Jamari's fingerprints were on the murder weapon. This was a woman who had seemingly murdered her husband in cold blood. I mean, Ashura, it's uh, fairly clear as to who 
committed the murder. It seems like she's the one who did it. What what doesn't yeah. add up is why would she murder somebody and then call the cops? But again, that is not something we have not heard of because in Max Sika or Anu Singh cases where the murderer has called the cops, which funnily enough were from Australia as well. I don't know if that's a trend <laughs> of murderers calling yeah. the cops onto themselves, but in this case, why it's kind of weird that she called the cops? Why would she? Did she have any specific reason to do so? So, are the reasons why Chamari ended up calling the emergency responders, despite seemingly being the one who killed her husband? The reasons why she didn't plan this out better and why she didn't up and run after committing the crime only gives legitimacy to her reason for why she killed her husband. While being interrogated by the cops, Chamari actually never admitted to killing Dinendra or Dean, as she affectionately used to call him. But she didn't deny it either. She claimed she just didn't remember what went down that night. She remembers the night before when Dinendra asked her to come sleep. She remembers shutting down her laptop and getting into bed with him. But the next thing she remembers is standing on the side of the bed, looking over at her husband's dead body, which then prompted her to call 000. But the evidence was decisive. She killed the man. And she not once claimed that she didn't kill him or that someone else could have done it. Just two days after the murder, on the 26th of June 2017, she was charged with murder. Dr. Chamari Leonage said she took full responsibility for what had happened and there was little to no chance of her reoffending. In her appeal before the court case began, she said, I would also like you to consider my personal circumstances leading to the offence. I was a victim of a long-term abusive and violent relationship and I believe that my judgement had been affected and considerably impaired at the time. Considering her circumstances, she said the chances that she will be a repeat offender were non-existent. When the courts asked her whether she pleaded guilty or innocent, her answer was an unabashed innocent. She wasn't a cold-blooded murderer, she claimed. She was a battered, abused woman who couldn't figure out a way out of a cycle of deep physical, sexual, emotional and financial abuse. As her trial began, all of Australia watched the news closely of an issue that resonated with many very strongly, an issue that divided public sentiment. She could have just left, many claimed. It's unfortunate she was abused in this way, but murder was not the only way out. Others disagree. Domestic abuse is complex. It's about control and manipulation, all of which make it incredibly hard for so many women to just get up and leave. Murder was truly her only way out, at least in her mind, they say. But the answers to this question, did she have another way out in her own mind, depend on the nature of abuse Jamari was facing for six years since she had known this man. When the trial initially began, only Jamari knew the details of what she had gone through. None of her closest friends knew the full picture either. But over the course of the three-week-long court proceedings, one detail after another after another surfaced, which slowly tipped the scales more and more in her favour. Only few had heard of cases of domestic abuse this horrific. Domestic abuse that wasn't just physical, it was emotional and psychological and financial and sexual. 
in the beginning of their relationship while the couple was still in Sri Lanka Dinendra had continued to cheat on Shamari over and over again every time claiming to quote never do it again until she would uncover a new affair he had started with a new woman even when the couple was together he would describe to Shamari his sexual encounters with other women and his past relationships despite her discomfort The constant betrayal, lying and deceit in this relationship had prompted Shamari to try and commit suicide back in 2010 by stealing a vial of muscle relaxant from her own hospital. But Dinendra stopped her again, claiming to never betray her again. A few months after the suicide attempt, he cheated on her again. When in late 2010 Shamari was talking about her sister's wedding plans with Dinendra, he ended up proposing to her. but said they should get married before he changed his mind and then once chamari said yes to her marrying him the control began he made it very clear to her that none of their friends were to come to the wedding and threw a huge fit getting incredibly angry at her when her parents invited 50 guests to the wedding while on their honeymoon in chennai in india dinendra asked chamari if he could pay someone money for casual sex while on their honeymoon but she refused Once the couple returned from their honeymoon, Dinendra created an email account for Chamari instructing her to only use that account, an account the password of which he knew. He even demanded she change her medical specialty from anesthesia to pathology. After the couple were married, he continued to invite past girlfriends to their home, where he would go into the couple's bedroom with his ex-girlfriend while his wife was still in the house. Sure, I remember it was this point in the story when you shared it with me the last time that I went. Mm-hmm. This is no longer just cheating, and you know, cheating right. is obviously hurtful, but it can't in and of itself merit murder. And I think examples like the ones we're seeing around, examples like the Noida case, where there's a decent chance that the in the Noida University case, murder was prompted by. some infidelity but infidelity doesn't merit murder it's a problem in and of itself but this is infidelity Correct. on steroids this is this is this is and i know it's it might snowball into more uh, ways of emotional and mental torture but just this in and of itself to be in the same house where your husband or your partner's ex-girlfriend is coming and you're seeing them engage in um, sexual relations it's it's wild I I can't imagine what your brain would be like. That's the thing Aryan to me there is a cheating where you are cheating on your partner you're guilty about it but your intention for cheating is not to hurt your partner. You know what I'm saying you're not doing it with the intent to cause harm or hurt you've made a mistake but it was because whatever you're messed up in the head you need to figure your your own life out. Right. With Dinendra, this is a cheating that seems clearly targeted at trying yeah, to yeah, hurt Shamari. Yeah, pathological, pathological, pathological cheating. Yeah. Right? He could obviously do this without telling her, and not in their own home. He could book a hotel room. He could not do it on their honeymoon. But he's obviously clearly doing it yeah, to try yeah, and yeah. hurt her. The cheating, the cheating, the cheating almost, the cheating almost is not uh, the means to an end where the end is not sexual pleasure. It is correct. The means, hurting the end her. is hurting her. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's the key distinction to me. And it just keeps getting worse like you said Aryan. While Dinendra was in Australia and Chamari was in Sri Lanka, he put her phone number on a website for sex workers, which led to her getting random calls and text messages from strangers. He asked her to Skype with him from 6 p.m. each day until the night, despite Chamari asking for time to study. 
all of this distraction, the cheating, the control led to Chamari failing her pathology exam in 2011. Then, towards the end of 2011, Chamari moved to Australia to be with Dinendra. When she arrived in Australia, the nature of the couple's relationship and the nature of Dinendra's abuse changed. On one random afternoon while at work, the couple was talking on call when Chamari asked Dinendra to hold the line so she could help an Aboriginal woman and her children on the street. Dinendra demanded that she stop talking to the lady, but Chamari did not. When Chamari went back home that day, he hit her on the back of her head so hard that she fell to the ground. Quote, like from that day, the relationship changed a lot. Like I was so scared of him from that day, a lot, because he hit me so much I couldn't even breathe. I was so scared of him and I didn't want to do anything wrong because I don't know whether he's going to hit me again. So I tried my best to not do anything to make him angry and tried to stay calm and silent, not to argue or not to do anything, end quote. She was a woman who was being beaten up heavily and regularly, sometimes with a wooden rolling pin, other times with metal chairs her husband would throw on her over and over again, sometimes with wooden spoons, other times with small metal balls he would throw at her using a slingshot, other times he would hit her with his knees and his elbows, pulling her hair, slapping her and punching her, all of which were common occurrences. He would beat her up if she refused to watch porn with him. He would beat her up if she refused to find other women for him. He would beat her up if she failed to buy a jacket Jesus he wanted her to buy him. He would beat her up if she failed to establish a friendship with other women he had chosen. It just wouldn't stop. When the couple went back to Sri Lanka during a break from work, he invited one of his exes over to their house again. And this time hit Jamari in front of his former girlfriend and then tried for the three of them to be intimate with each other. Despite being a working woman with her own earned money, Jamari found herself with no financial freedom. She couldn't even buy her own groceries without being continuously taunted and criticised for the way she had spent her money. Over the course of her abusive relationship, she had kept a diary which the court officer read in the proceedings. Quote, He plays with me like a cat. I am a mouse. Until I am dead, he plays. I am extremely scared for my life when I see that look in his eyes. Please, God, get me out. Let me die in peace. Please help me. End quote. I mean, it's not like she's asking for relief from her situation. She just wants an end to her life. She that is preferable. Die, yeah. That's preferable over her current disposition, which just goes on to show you how terrible her current circumstances are. And around this diary had noted in it multiple moments where she had contemplated taking her own life, ending it all, and finding, quote, eternal peace, as she called it. One instance, she wrote, quote, I was standing on the last stone, looking down to the vast ocean which was about to deliver my eternal peace, end quote. The abuse for Chamari, however, didn't end at beating her up and not letting her spend even a cent without Dinendra's approval. In fact, Chamari herself claims the physical abuse was nothing when compared to the emotional and psychological torment she underwent. It was that which broke her. Her husband would, in the evenings, turn on Skype on his computer, ask her to undress and perform sex acts for random strangers live on the internet. One of Jamari's closest friends, D. Budge, came forward to say, quote, The thing that caused the biggest shame. 
He used to wake her in the early hours for his Skype sessions. These websites where they exchanged videos, porn videos, and he used to trade videos of her with whatever he was looking at. End quote. By whatever he was looking at, debudge meant specifically pornographic videos of children and animals. He would exchange videos of his wife for those. If she didn't comply, she would be brutally beaten up. If she left him, which she tried to do six times, he would threaten everyone she had ever loved, her family, her friends, and her too. He would threaten to kill her. But what scared Chamari the most were the threats that Dinendra made towards Chamari's sister and her two twin babies. He said he would pay someone back in Sri Lanka to have acid thrown on her family members if she didn't comply. In her stressed mental state, Chamari believed he was genuinely capable of harming her family because he had the finances and the influence necessary to be able to do so. Victoria Cook, the family and domestic violence expert who was brought in to interview Chamari and gave her testimony to the court, said the following. Quote, it is a very common and normal phenomenon for those living with coercive control in the context of high-risk experiences of abuse and violence to refrain or be exceedingly careful about help-seeking or to experience fluctuating help-seeking due to the level of fear and the belief that others or self will be killed or seriously harmed if the police became involved. End quote. Victoria Cook claims that Chamari had continued to stay in the relationship because of the way Dinendra had portrayed himself early on with the use of his charm and emotional manipulation, increasing isolation, secrecy and shame. There are also cultural factors deeply involved in why Chamari chose not to leave. In one of the six times when Chamari did try to escape, her mother-in-law pleaded with her not to leave the relationship, asking her to give it just one more try. On another one of the instances she tried to leave, he let her leave, but only on the condition that she forward all of her email to him and take only half the medication from their home with her. When she did leave, he called her incredibly angry because she took one full bottle of fungal cream when he asked her only to take half of all the medication. When she went back to return the cream, she found him drowsy and drunk in the house, crying, which made her stay. Clearly then, the matter is more complicated than saying, why didn't she just leave him? But it didn't end there. Dinendra was a sick man. He owned three separate laptops and on all three and on a number of hard drives, he had collected a total of 13 terabytes worth of encrypted child exploitation and bestiality images and videos. It's facts like these, Ashwarya, that make me go, this is absolutely not cheating. Um, yeah, uh, you know, the, the, the problem is the there's a fine line between toxic relationships and psychological torture. Now, I don't know what that line is, nor do I know how jurisprudence, especially if Australia defines that line. But I can for certain say, if you're being forced to watch bestiality, which is, for those of you who don't know, seeing porn involving animals, right? And child yeah. porn. These are illegal activity, activities inherently. And if you're being forced mm-hmm. to engage in illegal activities, that qualifies as some version of psychological torture, which, which should be illegal Absolutely. if it is not. And sex to me is such a personal decision, a personal reflection, a personal choice 
that forcefully engage someone in any kind of sex watching sex or engaging in sex especially sex that many countries would call unnatural like sex with children or with animals is just so deeply perverse like i can't get over that it's such a perverse form of torture in my mind dinendra just keeps going from one level of being a sick man on to another and it's worse every single time and this is exactly what i mean by everything in this court case just slowly and surely tip the scales in jamari's favor aryan but i want to put 13 terabytes into context for you all i said he had 13 terabytes worth of encrypted child exploitation and bestiality images and videos 13 terabytes 1 terabyte is equal to 1000 gb which is 10 times the space on your highest storage iphone he had 13 times that amount 13000 gb in just child pornography and bestiality 1 terabyte lets you store 250000 images 500 hours of hd videos and 6.5 million documents he had 13 times that amount in just child pornography and bestiality not only did he have these images for his own pleasure he would force his wife to watch these images and videos with him time and time again his obsession with young girls didn't just end at videos and images though he forced jamari to reach out to young girls and begin intimate relationships with them before he would then invite these women over to the couple's apartment where he would either watch his wife in these forced intimate sexual acts with other women or sometimes even join in one of the girls dinendra had forced jamari to start a relationship with was just 17 at the time and had come forward in court to give her testimony in support of jamari This 17-year-old whose name and identity had been sealed to protect her privacy was called K in the court documents. K said that she would often go over to the couple's house for dinners and once she was asked to shower with Jamari. Before the two women showered though, K says that the couple waxed her legs together. Dinendra recorded the entire incident on his camera asking the young girl questions like do you have a boyfriend, hugging her inappropriately. and eventually joining the two women in the shower the couple even bought k a camera and spent one of their evenings teaching her how to take explicit photographs and videos they also bought her clothes and shoes as gifts while this young girl narrated all of this in court jamari was seen crying hearing the details quote she did this to protect me and my mum said the young girl despite all of these narrations of abuse though One fact was certain and both the defense and the prosecution in this case acknowledged it. When Chamari picked up that mallet and killed her husband, she was not in immediate danger. The prosecution said, quote, during the evening of Monday, 23rd of June 2014, the accused and the deceased were at their home address alone. They argued about a work-related matter before retiring to the bedroom. End quote. This work-related matter was Dinendra ordering Chamari to apply for a study leave from work so that both of them could take K on a holiday together. The prosecution continued, quote, During that evening or in the early hours of the morning, the deceased spoke to his brother in Sri Lanka by telephone. At some point thereafter, the accused obtained a metal hammer from a cupboard in the corridor of the unit returned to the bedroom and struck the deceased to the head at the time the deceased was laying on the bed 
at least two blows were inflicted causing extensive blunt force trauma injuries to the head and neck and resulting in substantial blood loss end quote but the defense had two rather strong counters to the subjection by the prosecution sure she wasn't in immediate danger at that exact moment they conceded but her actions were motivated by a belief that dinendra was going to harm her like he had been for years she quote believed her actions to be necessary to protect herself from harm said the defense therefore her actions were a reasonable response in the circumstances as she believed them to be but the defense acknowledged that there was a problem with this argument there was no way to prove it since jamari had always maintained that she had no memory of killing her husband if she has no memory of killing him she has no memory of why she chose to kill him at that moment but the fact that she couldn't remember anything became the defense's second argument her actions occurred in a state of non-insane automatism they claimed and they brought into court two psychiatrists to testify to this phenomenon the court heard all of this evidence over the course of 3 weeks and by the end one thing was clear to everyone this woman had suffered terribly justice steven hall overseeing the case called dinendra a quote manipulative and merciless offender the saddest part of it all was that chamari wasn't afraid or hesitant about going to prison the prison cell felt freeing to her it was her own home with her own husband that had felt like a prison sentence and in a move that left everyone with a sense of justice done right chamari was found not guilty of murder but guilty of manslaughter which was a much shorter sentence it was 4 years with the possibility of parole after 2 but her sentence was backdated to 2 days after the murder meaning since chamari had been in prison for the last 18 months since the night of the murder during the trial those 18 months of the trial were counted in her sentence while in prison chamari found a passion for painting she calls it meditative a healthy way for her to express all the emotions she had bottled up quote when i got to prison it was a safe haven i found my own peace in my mind and in my heart and it let me explore myself and be myself end quote then 19 year old k went to visit chamari in prison with her mother too k said quote when we got together we all hugged and cried my mom was comforting her Leonage said she was very sorry. She said she feels very sorry for mum and that we happened to be a part of this. End quote. Just 6 months after the trial ended, Chamari appealed for her parole and got it accepted. She walked out of the prison a free woman, free in more ways than one. But walking out of prison wasn't an end to her problems. Her medical license had been revoked for 5 years and the immigration office had decided to revoke her visa, ordering her back to Sri Lanka. But Australia wasn't willing to accept that verdict. People protested. Her friends spoke out in her support. Change.org petitions were signed. Lawyers and activists wrote letters advocating for her, advocating for the case of all abused women and a change in the way that legal systems look at them. "Quote, she's already suffered enough and she's already paid the penalty." End quote. Argued a lot of Australians in her support. And so the immigration office reversed its original decision and allowed Jamari to continue to retain her current visa and the right to renew it if she does desire to continue to stay in Australia. 
as of a few years ago she was still not a practicing doctor but she was busy enjoying the final pleasures of life she had been devoid of for so long just the act of going grocery shopping without fear was liberating to her she said in an interview quote i knew all about domestic violence myself as a medical officer i've seen it and i've dealt with it but in my own life i was trapped and i was isolated and i couldn't talk about it so people have to understand that no matter how intelligent no matter how independent it's difficult for people to come out and ask for help end quote and with that we've come to an end to this week's episode we'll see you in the second bonus episode that we're giving to you shortly till then stay safe stay crazy stay desi